beer. So happy new everything. Happy new year to you, which means many of us have started some resolutions, right? You should be undefeated at this point if you have started a diet plan. Anybody start a diet plan? Maybe in your dreams at least? Or you endeavor to stay in touch with all those people that you lost touch with last year, or you're going to have some new habits of success, right? We tend to be very hopeful this time of year because of the newness. Pastor Byron is going for a firstborn male child this new year. That's something very new for him. Amen to that. Newness and hope. Well, it's a good time also to be thinking on the biblical category of new. The Bible has a concept of newness. In fact, it's appropriate for us to actually celebrate Christmas, the coming of Jesus in December at the end of it, and then roll right into the new year because in the scriptures, once Jesus comes, everything is new because of his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. The Bible says we have, for instance, a new covenant, right? You may have read that in the scriptures, a new creation, a new humanity, a new birth. Paul says we have a newness of spirit in Jesus Christ. In fact, um, when we talk about new, we have to remember that the Bible's concept of a new is a little bit different than we sometimes think about new. Sometimes we think about new in a sense that it's not worn out. Like if I wanted to get some new dress shoes, they wouldn't have holes in them anymore. They would still function the same way. They just wouldn't be worn out. Or sometimes we think of new just being merely recent. Right? Like new facial hair. It's the same as yesterday's facial hair, but this is more recent. That's what we mean. But the Bible means something different when we hear the concepts of new covenant, new creation. The idea there is transformation. Right? It's restoration. Something that is much better than what came before it. It's reinvigoration of what came before. That's what we see when we think of new in the Scriptures. In short... It's a whole new everything. Our existence has been altered at its very core. That's what the Bible means when it talks of being new. And it's across the board. It's panoptic in scope. It's the whole shebang. Everything is turned on its head and made new with the coming of Jesus. John taps into this. You may remember in the famous text in John, uh, when John speaks in Revelation 21, he gets a glimpse of this newness when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the, be- the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And that's the type of new I want to hold out to you this morning in the new year. What if the greatest newness you experienced in 2016 goes way beyond exercise habits or diet plans or sleep schedules What if you lived empowered by the hope that as you have come to Jesus Christ, you're a part of a new dawn, a sun-drenched spring in which God has personally committed to you 
to transform you as a part of his global cosmic restoration in such a way that he'll get all of the glory for his grandeur, but you'll have little buds of joy spring out from your soul. That's the kind of new that I want us to walk in in this new year. Well, how do you do it? Well, you have to keep your mind in the scriptures or you forget such things. And that's why we go to the scriptures this morning. We're going to just duck briefly into the text, the narrative of John 4, with hopes of being encouraged by a new type of new, so to speak. We're going to concentrate on the new realities that have arrived in Jesus Christ. The new realities that have arrived in Jesus Christ. And as we jump into this text, where we find Jesus in his life is he's traveling through Samaria. He had been down south in Palestine, been making disciples, and he was making them a little too well, making people uncomfortable, the Jewish leaders. And so he decided to hightail it north. If you've got a map up here, I'm going to try to put a map up there. And you'll see he was in the pink section, starting out his ministry in, uh, near Jerusalem and Judea. And he decided he wanted to go to the yellow section. Capernaum is there, his home base. And to do that, he had to pass through the purple the purple section is Samaria, the whole region named after the town there. And we find him right in the middle of there on that route, the red route, the common road that was going north. And what we have to keep in mind about the Samaritans is they were a little bit different type of folks. Jesus' people didn't really jive with the Samaritan people. You've heard of Samaritans as the Good Samaritan in the famous story. And you might think, well, they're all just nice folks. Because good Samaritans means nice people. Not so much, according to the Jews, what had happened in Samaria is the Jewish people had been overthrown in that region and a lot of their leaders had been removed and the people who overthrew them brought in some other folks to marry with the Jews that remain, which over time created a new ethnic group. Uh, people that was culturally different than the Jews. They had a different Bible they read. They had a different temple they went to. Everything was different. And when you see different cultures or different families sharing space like that, sometimes it's like the Hatfields and McCoys, right? A lot of tension build up around sharing space. And that was what was going on when Jesus has to travel through Samaria. That kind of flavors the story we're going to read today. Let's pick up the story in verse 5 of chapter 4. And here we see Jesus. So Jesus comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about six hours, that's noontime, right? The middle of the day. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. You can picture her coming there with her jar all alone, it seems. And Jesus says to her, Would you give me a drink? Now, he had to do this because his disciples had already gone into town. Normally, they would have gotten everything for him, but he's by himself, and he says, why don't you give me some of that water that you're drawing? Verse 9, Samaritan woman says to him, well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Then John adds helpfully, as if we didn't know, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that phrase, the last phrase, no dealings, um, can be translated either have no dealings with them or 
don't use the same dishes, literally. And so here she is with a pot, whether she's saying, we don't use the same dishes, or we just, she's saying, we don't deal with y'all. The effect is the same, right? We see Jesus unprovoked, initiating conversation. He's moving towards someone who would be considered unclean by his people, right? She was considered ritually unclean because she was a Samaritan and they didn't keep the right laws. They didn't keep the right rituals. So Jewish people considered all Samaritans unclean and Jesus is pursuing her. Not only that, she is a woman, which is not a big deal in our culture, but in that culture, the Jewish men wouldn't even talk in public to other Jewish women. It just wasn't done. Moreover, they wouldn't talk to a Samaritan woman. That would be double faux pas, right? So this is a big step against culture that Jesus is doing to pursue someone who would be considered unthinkable of pursuing. And on top of that... We also get the hint as the narrative continues, as the story goes on, that this woman is morally dirty. She's immoral. For instance, we get some hints. She's apparently alone when she comes to draw the water. In that culture, it was a social act to come and draw the water. So the fact that she's seen as being alone is a little, um, a little weird. You might think, why is she alone? Well, it could be because she's an outcast. Also, she's coming at the wrong time of day. When you draw your water, it's kind of like chores in the South. You would do them early or you would do them in the cool of the evening. You wouldn't do your chores in the middle of the day. People take rest during that time of day. But here she is doing her work, probably because she's outcast and she can't do it when everybody else does it. And yet Jesus is pursuing her. And this becomes clearer later in the story in verse 18. Jesus is talking to her, and he reveals that he actually knows that she's already ran through five different husbands. And she's got a sixth dude she's living with that she's not married to. One commentator said she is a serial fornicator. She's an immoral woman. And yet, Jesus is going to pursue her. And that's going to be the first new reality that I want you to notice. Jesus is going to offer a new type of clean. Jesus offers in himself a new type of queen. Think about it. Other Jews would not have come towards her. They would have been defiled just by talking to her. It's unholy. It's ritually inappropriate. She's unclean. They wouldn't go anywhere near her. It's almost like if you're um, making a type of food. If you've ever made uh, hamburger patties, you make those patties together and you wash your hands really good and you get them, you make them, and what happens when you're done? You're all greasy, slimy, and you have to go wash again, right? It's not as if I wash my hands and my clean hands make the patties unslimy. No, it doesn't work that way. Slimy stuff makes you nasty. That's the nature of nasty. And the Jewish people knew this. You don't go into something unclean. You don't approach it because it will defile you. But when Jesus came, he twisted all of this on his head. He's the only one who was holy enough to touch something, make it holy himself and make it clean. And that's what he was offering this woman at the well. In the midst of all of her sin, he was saying, come to me, no matter what you've done, I know it, come to me and you will be clean. In theology, we call this the work of regeneration. Regeneration is done by the Holy Spirit based on the work of Jesus Christ. According to the scriptures, 
We all are dirty on the inside. So this woman isn't necessarily supposed to stand out as outstanding in the story as much as she's supposed to be representative of our own spiritual condition. We're supposed to read this and say, oh, she's an immoral woman. And oh, I'm like that on the inside because I have sinned against God. I am guilty. I am dirty according to the eyes of a holy God. So there's a real sense in which we need to be remade. A rebirth, a recreation needs to happen because of our guilt. In fact, if you remember reading in John, in John chapter 3, just one chapter earlier, another guy encountered Jesus. It's a guy named Nicodemus, and he starts talking about the things of God. And he said, what needs to happen? And Jesus says, you need to be remade, you need to be born again by water and by the Spirit from above. You need to be remade. That's what the Holy Spirit will do for us. But before he does it, there has to be something that deals with the dirt, right? That deals with the sin problem. And that's why Christ came. His cleanliness in his death is actually applied to us. So our account of guilt is bottomed out. It's cleaned out by Jesus' account of moral goodness. His righteousness if you would, takes our place so that we can be cleansed. And the Holy Spirit comes and applies that cleaning to us. That's what we call regeneration. And when we first turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, we are washed. And that's a new type of clean that the woman's being offered. It's a new type of new. It's really exciting here. So how should we receive it? Well, there's a couple of different types of people that are here today, first, some of us have never believed this. You think, 2,000 years ago, I'm supposed to believe that a God-man came and dealt with all of my guilt 2,000 years ago? Some of you just haven't bought it. That's okay. We welcome here people who haven't believed. We just ask you, we dare you to consider these things, and if you dare to believe it, Hold on tight because God will change you radically. The offer is here of the good news of cleansing. But there are others of us here who have believed, but we've forgotten it, right? We believe that there's a cleansing at the cross, but how easily we forget it because we make a mess of our life, right? We make mistakes, we crash our own dreams, and we sin against God, and we forget that we have been clean. For every five husbands the woman at the well goes through, you've had 500 moments of anger at your children, and you're full of self-condemnation. Or maybe even it's your own immorality. Like the woman at the well, you struggle with immorality through pornography, and you're now self-stigmatized, waking up with guilt. The audience in your head is always booing every morning when you wake up because what you have done. If that's you here this morning, here is your action point. Know that Jesus Christ knew every single thing that woman had done, and he still decided to move towards her and offer her a cleansing. That's the hope, the new type of clean that we have in Jesus. Think about this. Christ has never viewed you as you view yourself. Jesus Christ has never viewed you as you view yourself. Now, whose perspective are you going to trust? The creator of the universe or your own? In fact, when the Apostle Paul was sharing Jesus' perspective of who you are 
in him. He gave a beautiful image. Remember what it was? It's found in Ephesians 5. It's the image of a bride, right? I remember talking to an old pastor, the guy who discipled me. This was years ago, but he would tell me, he said, I've, I've performed hundreds, hundreds of weddings. Perform them all the time. And he's like, I've never once seen an ugly bride. There's so much glow there, and they're so happy. All brides are beautiful, he would tell me. Then he would say, I've seen some homely bridesmaids, but that's a different story. <laughs> his, his point was, that's not my words, that's his. His point was, brides are beautiful. And that's the idea Paul presents in Ephesians 5, when he said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to whom? To himself. Makes sense that he does the cleaning because he's presenting this something that he wants himself. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle. I think of myself sometimes as spotty or wrinkled because of what I have done. But that's not how Christ is presenting you. Spiritually, you are being made over that we might be holy and without blemish. So if you're stuck in the washroom, in the restroom of your condemnation, don't look in the mirror. That's not the true view of who you are. Think about Christ who takes the washcloth and the soap and washes you clean. That's the new spiritual reality that we have in Jesus Christ. He's preparing you for who you are going to be at the end time. So not only in the story do we see a new type of clean, but we also see a new type of satisfaction. We have a new type of clean in Jesus and a new type of satisfaction. Back at the edge of the well here in our text, the woman finds herself in an increasingly more uncomfortable conversation, right? She's going to be talking to this guy, and she figures out he's a prophet. He knows things about her that people should not know. And when Jesus asks for a drink, she basically says, how dare you? How dare you ask me for this? Jesus' response is in verse 10. Look at what he says. He says, Jesus answered her saying, if you knew the gift of God, because he's asked her for a gift, right? Give me a gift of water. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the woman's all confused at this point. Verse 11 she says to him, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She's missing the metaphor. And this well is really deep. Where do you get that living water? And in somewhat uh, condescending way, verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Answer, yes. He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus doesn't answer her question directly, but look what he does say in verse 13. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water in the well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal Life. So as is common in the teaching ministry of Jesus and the gospel, he's going to take something normal and material like water and attach a lot of symbolism to it based upon usually how it was used in the Old Testament. And here's a couple things we can glean here. First, what we're taught here is that through Jesus, we can experience the Holy Spirit in a new, satisfying 
way. When Jesus is saying, I've got living water for you to drink, that can sound confusing, right? I've got some living water for you. Here, take it. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Later in chapter 7, we find Jesus at a water festival at the end of uh, the feast, and people are pouring out water every day, and Jesus stands up and talks about, here comes the living water, I'm going to give it out. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus picks this because of the way it was used in the Old Testament. Some of you have been with us over the past few weeks, and we've been studying the book of Isaiah. What's interesting in the book, in the prophecies of Isaiah, they're all looking forward to this point when Jesus comes, and oftentimes they will use water talk, water imagery, to describe this age of blessing that Jesus inaugurates. For instance, Isaiah 12, 3. We see the prophet saying, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I'll not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he's become my salvation. With joy, when the Messiah comes, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Right? Jesus is picking up on that. Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. A new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Again, in Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not ever fail. In Isaiah and other prophets, they're looking forward to this season of hope, season of blessing, when the waters of the Spirit of God are flowing and flooding His people with the goodness and blessings of of our God. So he's saying that now that I have come, Jesus said, in my life and death and resurrection, the floodgates have been opened, and now the blessing of this new satisfaction can be found in Jesus. So here's some satisfying things about the age of blessing. A couple things here. First, a part of this age of blessing is that we are now able to have our spiritual thirst quenched. Right? We can be satisfied in our deepest needs because of this living water. Now, we need to think about that, right? Because we can misunderstand this. What is Jesus saying when he says, come to me and you'll never thirst? I've got water, spiritual substance in the Spirit, such that you will never go thirsty again. What is he saying? Well, I mean, is he saying that if we have the Spirit of God, we'll never be worried again? Is he saying that our need for others to accept us will vanish if we open up to the Spirit of God. Is he saying that our addictive physical compulsions will be annihilated by the Spirit? Well, God can do this, but that's not my story. I don't know about you, but I'm still thirsty. I remain dry at times. I still worry. I still struggle with the idols of comfort and control and approval. So what does Jesus mean? Is this a con? Is this a word play? Is this a scam? When he says, I have water so that you'll never be thirsty. And yet, I talk to people all the time who are still thirsty. What does this mean? Well, one pastor says this. He says, I think what Jesus is saying is, when you drink my water, it doesn't destroy thirst. It doesn't destroy thirst when you drink my water. For then what need would you have of my water after that? When you drink my water, it makes a spring in you. A spring satisfies thirst not by removing the need for it, right? but being there to drink whenever you get thirsty. 
In other words, this is all about access. When Jesus talks about the living water, it's all about access. Kind of like running a race. This December, I took my family out, six of them anyway, and we did a fun run. You know what that is? That's a 5K where they don't keep count of how fast you run. (laughs) Exactly what I needed, right? So I'm there with one of my kids, and we pair up, and we start the run. And like most of these runs, they have water stations. Every mile or so, every half mile, they have people with water. And when you pass them, you can take it. You can pass it up. You can dramatically flip it. Whatever you want to do. When you come to the water station, you have a choice. And I came to the first one. I'm with my son. And he says, let's get some water. And I say wisely, no, we'll wait to the next water station. And so we keep running and 100 yards past it, guess what happens? I start to get really thirsty, right? And I'm thinking, I can't go back to that water station, and it's probably almost a mile to the next one. And then I come across this more seasoned runner. She's doing intervals. That's the only reason I catch her. That's when you stop and you start and you stop. stop. For whatever reason, that's her game. And so I'm plugging along, and I come across her, and I notice she's got this backpack on. In a race, I'm like, why is she wearing a backpack? Is there weights in there? No, it's one of those camelback hydration units with tubes sticking everywhere and she got them on both sides and I pass her and she looks at me and I swear it was snide. She looks at me and she's like (laughs) she's drinking the whole time and I'm dying of thirst. That's the type of thing Jesus is talking about here. It's not as if I never got thirsty and she never got thirsty. We both got thirsty but she had access to water that I did not have. And that's what Christ says is so new. When you come to him, you now have access to fountains of flowing water, right? It doesn't mean that your problems go away. It doesn't mean you're not going to get knocked down by depression. You might just. The promise isn't that you're not going to skin your knee on grief. That happens. Or you might be sucker punched by sorrow. Promise isn't that your problems go away. The promise is that you will always have access to the Spirit of God that can and will satisfy you if you turn to Him and just drink. That's the promise. Turn and drink in the midst of all of your life chaos. What does that look like for you this year? I'm not sure. Not in your shoes. Maybe you've got some financial problems. You're not taking in as much as you're spending out, and so you're worried. Where's your next mortgage payment going to come from? I can promise you this. Even if the money's not there, the living water will be, and you should drink of it. Maybe you're just feeling dry. Over the holidays, you didn't touch the Bible. You were traveling. Quiet time went, you feel parched. You were dry. Christ didn't go anywhere. The water is still living within you. Turn to him and drink and you will experience the peace of knowing the living God. You will be restored. I saw this happen one time with a woman who was doing this type of drinking. She was in our congregation here uh, a few years ago and an older lady and she had a husband and uh, I was close to them, and one day 
I walked into my house and Julie said I was all white and pale. And it's because I'd just gotten a call that the older man had had a heart attack and he was in the hospital. And so I rushed over there and I knew that this lady struggled with anxiety and worry. And I ran in there and I thought, I'm going to have to minister to her worry and anxiety. And I showed up there and he was still back his life on the table, and she was in the waiting room because they wouldn't let her back in there while they were doing the stuff. And uh, she was out there, and she was sitting in the corner, and she was sitting so peacefully with her Bible open, and she was actually reading the Word of God, and I talked to her, and I could not believe the amount of tranquil peace that she had. Now, she wasn't denying the situation. She wasn't living in la-la land. She was concerned and maybe even worried, but there was a predominant sense that she was drinking from the living water when it mattered. And she was restored. And thankfully, the man survived, and later she gave all the glory to God. And she said in a matter-of-fact way, of course I'm going to turn and drink of the living water because what else is there during those moments? Amazing way to see someone satisfied by this living water. So that's one of the blessings of this new age that we're moving into here. It's profound. Your profound spiritual thirst can be quenched by the Holy Spirit. Another satisfying thing about this new age of blessing is that it's so hopeful to see all things being recreated. It's so hopeful to see all things being recreated. Let's skip on down to verse 25. We'll jump back into the conversation. It's a long conversation. I wish we had time to read it all. You might want to go home and read the whole story. I'm just going to kind of skip down. Jesus says something here that's easy to miss. Verse 25, the woman's talking to him. Remember who she was. She was a Samaritan. Those Samaritan people, they were expecting the Messiah to come, but he was going to be a teacher guy. He was going to lead them forward by great teaching. They were missing a lot of who the Messiah was going to be because they didn't believe the whole Old Testament. And so she said, hey, listen, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things, right? He's a teller. He's a teacher. He's going to tell us how things are going to be. And Jesus says to her, well, I who speak to you am he. I am he. And outside of the death trials of Jesus Christ, when he's on trial for his life, this is the clearest statement of Christ saying that I'm the Messiah. He doesn't walk around all the time saying, I'm the Messiah, not the way he rolls. Instead, he keeps this subdued until the right moment. But here, he lets it out. And he says, I am he. And the way that he says it is key because his words are almost an exact replica that we have in John of the words in Isaiah 52.6. And in that text in Isaiah 52, 6, God is calling his people into a new era of blessing, a new era of blessing. So Jesus is saying, the new era of blessing is starting with me because I am the one who is coming. When the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 47 of his prophecy, when he envisioned the coming of the Messiah, he envisions it in terms of recreation. Uh, a new Eden is happening. Listen to what Ezekiel says in verse 12 of chapter 47. When he looks forward to this time, when Jesus arrives, this is what he says. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, see the water, there will grow all kinds of trees for food and their leaves won't wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food 
and their leaves for healing. Here the fruit chalk, all that is speaking of a new Eden, a new creation. When Christ comes, new creation is starting. And one thing that's so satisfying about that as a believer is that when we dwell on the reality that God is now making all things new, he's recreating stuff even as we speak, this has started. When we dwell on that, that gives us a a true picture of how our story is going to end. If you think about it, if left to ourselves, what Satan tries to tell us is that it's always going to be the status quo, right? That you're not going to change or the people in your life that you want to change are never going to change, or your circumstances or your bodies are never going to change. But the truth is, from Ezekiel and other texts, when Jesus comes, recreation starts. A transformation is starting all throughout the universe by Jesus himself. And we are returning to a new Eden, the one that Adam lost. We are returning here. So we're tempted to think our limited bodies are going to always ache or our relationships are going to continue to be so abrasive or inner city crime is going to continue to climb. Just this week, we had a teenager that had attended this church and people had mentored. Uh, He and his fiance were both shot right here off of Rock Quarry Road. Uh, The teenager, the boy survived and the girl didn't. She's gone black-on-black crime, and it's so sad. We tend to think if left alone, that's just going to continue. Nothing's going to stop that. That's just the way it is. Christ says, no, the canals of my water will flow, and I will recreate all of these things. Death will not always reign. Your body will not always ache. Relationships will not always be severed. There once again will be the harmony Described in Eden, where God and man and man and man exist in unity. That's so hopeful. When I look forward to this year in 2016, that's a promise I want to wrap my arms around, the new creation reality of healing in Jesus Christ. And finally, one more blessing here that we see in this text. We've seen how our spiritual thirst can be quenched. And our hope in recreation can sustain us now. Finally, note this. It's deeply gratifying to know you will live forever with God. You will live forever with God. Read the last part of verse 14 again. Because the water's just not for now. The water that I will give him, Jesus says, will become in him a spring of water that will well up to what? To eternal Life. Grab hold of that promise. The refreshing water is not just to satisfy you now, though it is that. It is to well up and be a guarantee of the future reality that you will never die. Jesus proved that in his resurrection. That's the point of it. You look at that and you say, oh, is Jesus going to stay dead? No, he didn't stay dead. He rose back to life thereby proving his work on the cross was accepted by God. So we too will be accepted by God and we will not have our sins counted against us. Instead, we will have new eternal life forever in Jesus. But there's a condition there that comes up in the story, a condition upon which forever life is based. If you skip down to verse 39, 
This is the end of the story. After Jesus had a conversation at the well, the woman went throughout the town and she just told everybody and she didn't share the full gospel. She shared enough. She said, hey, listen, this guy at the well, he's got to be a crazy prophet because he told me everything I ever did. And maybe because she was an outcast, because she was immoral, that tweaked the interest of the townsfolk. Whatever happened, many of them came and they believed because of her story and they also met Jesus. Verse 39 says this, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For now we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here lies the condition. You must believe it. You must sink your teeth into it. You must grasp it. You must have faith in something that's not completely seen, although we see evidences of it. And it's real. Realer than anything else in your life, we still must believe it. And we see these Samaritans do it so much that they say, now he is going to be seen as the Savior of the world. And all of us will have to come face to face some of us sooner than later with our own mortality, right? You're either going to get sick or someone in your life will get sick or there'll be an accident or someone in your life will pass away. You will have to look death in the eye. And what hope have you if not for this eternal life granted by the only one who came back to life and defeated death? That is Jesus Christ. Paul said the sting of death which is sin that God holds against us, is canceled by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That's why Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul knew if you experience these living waters, they will carry you through your physical death and you will live eternally. You know what that does? That frees you up a lot. Right, The older people get, typically the more they contemplate their own mortality, their own death. And it's scary. But knowing that you will live forever frees you up to live a life glorifying to God now, full of good works of love towards other people.